Thanks for joining me, Pete Holsterman, for the Credentials Only Podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is Todd Martin, the CEO of the International Tennis Hall of Fame in Newport, Rhode Island. Tennis has long been a part of Todd's life, including a career that spanned more than a decade as a pro on the HP Tour, a tenure that included eight titles and a career-high ranking of number four in the world. I took the job uh, when I was recruited to the Hall of Fame because of the sport. I am passionate about the sport. I will go to my grave no matter when, owing the sport a debt. That no matter what I give back to the sport, I will have certainly taken more from it than given to it. Like all halls of fame, the sport's history and legends are celebrated in Newport. We believe that the history we preserve, the legends that we celebrate, uh, and the service that we provide the community all are inspirations for both future generations and current generations of tennis lovers, but also society at large. For Todd, there's much more than just celebrating this history in his job description. We not only operate a 20-court tennis club, we're a professional tennis franchise in hosting a, the Hall of Fame Open. We have a global mandate, not, not regional, and we're not subsidized by a singular league. Whether it was his playing career or time spent coaching after retirement, Todd draws from all he has done in his current role. You know, those experiences incredibly informative as to uh, how somebody with my background who wore shorts to work all his life, who didn't love school, who didn't love the academic elements of school, could find gratification, fulfillment, challenge, and a whole lot of, uh, of other benefits from uh, doing the work uh, of leading an organization like this. As we get started, please take a moment to leave a rating and review wherever you are listening. Don't forget, you can visit credentialsonly.com for show notes about what we discuss in this episode. But while you're there, please sign up for our email mailing list to get notified whenever we have a new episode. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Todd Martin, CEO of the International Tennis Hall of Fame. Todd, thanks so much for joining me. For someone who's never been to Newport, Rhode Island, how would you describe that town? Oh, wow. Uh, Newport, Rhode Island is um, as historic of a town that I've been to in the U.S. Um, and it is, you know, it's the lifestyles of the rich and famous from back in the day to modern day. It's just a, a really fun tourist uh, sailing community. Uh, and the Hall of Fame fits uh, literally right in the center of it all, sort of right in the center of downtown uh, at the gateway to the, uh, the mansions of Newport, which are the Vanderbilt estates and, and, and the such. You know, Rhode Island is unique in its size and in, in its geographic location, and Newport is a tiny little pocket of it. On, on an extreme end of the state. So hard to get to, uh, easy to enjoy once you're here. You mentioned the Hall of Fame being in the center of the city. Why is the Hall of Fame in Newport, Rhode Island? Jimmy Van Allen, the fellow who uh, created the tiebreak, when uh, back in the 50s, he uh, saw that the um, Newport Casino, which is the property that the Hall of Fame resides on, 
uh, which was built in 1880. The Newport Casino was uh, the host of annual tennis tournaments, um, had started to develop a bit of a, a, a historical vibe, uh, considering it was the home of the first U.S. Nationals. And uh, he uh, took it upon himself to, to lead a, uh, a cause to create uh, what was then the National Tennis Hall of Fame or National Lawn Tennis Hall of Fame uh, and uh, develop a museum. That um, ultimately became the International Tennis Hall of Fame in the middle of the 70s. And honestly, I think uh, you, know, you, you see something get established and it makes sense. No matter, you know, no matter where you sort of set up shop first, it makes sense. Uh, and considering the historic element of our property, uh, it's it's never moved, and now it's uh, you know it's 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 a it's a 65 year old establishment that will likely be here for a lot long a lot longer. What have you guys done to that casino to turn it into the facility that it is today for your operations? Well, it's got uh, 20, uh, 20 tennis courts. Six of them are hard courts. Uh, those are um, some of the more contemporary additions or uh, improvements to the property. We, um, we added two new buildings, a, a massive uh, commercial space, locker rooms, pro shop, fitness center, offices, uh, some, some storefronts. Uh, and a, a three-court indoor tennis club along with, or a building, a, a tennis building, uh, along with three outdoor hard courts that uh, we have bubbled during the school year. Uh, you, you take th that six out of our 20, we've got a hard true clay court uh, and then uh, 13 grass courts. So that's a big part of it. Uh, we have a uh, and then in the the most historic part of the property is the 12,000 square foot museum that chronicles the history of the sport from uh, centuries ago to today. Uh, we have uh, uh, my favorite building on the property is uh, the casino theater, which is a 300 person historic theater from 1880 as well. Uh, it, it was sort of the gathering place, dance hall in the roaring 20s and the such for the, for the community. It's evolved into just a stunning uh, restored theater um, for both stage and film. Uh, and then finally, we've got what I would call the living museum in um, the, our, our real tennis, royal tennis or court tennis, depending on where you're from. Uh, court and this is the the grandfather of all racket sports. Uh, we still play it um, all day, every day on property at the Hall of Fame, and um, uh, it just so happens to be my favorite pastime as well. What is the mission of the International Tennis Hall of Fame? Summarized by three words: preserve, celebrate, and inspire. We're we're, uh, we're meant to preserve the history of our sport and make sure that it's. Uh, around to be told uh, forever, uh, celebrate the, the greatest legends of our game and make sure that that community is, remains intact, their stories are, are told readily. And then finally, uh, inspire in that, you know, from the ins, uh, ins, inspiration side of things, we believe that the history we preserve, the legends that we celebrate, 
uh, and the service that we provide the community all are inspirations for both future generations and current generations of tennis lovers, but also society at large from the standpoint of how impactful tennis has been in world history, tennis players have been in their, um, uh, in their actions to lead society. Uh, and, and I doubt that will be uh, something only of the past. To talk about Hall of Fame, you have to talk about the Hall of Famers. How many people have been inducted into the Tennis Hall of Fame and what is the process for them to earn that recognition? So you, you ask that question at a, a nuanced time. Um, <laughs> so 257 have been inducted into the Hall of Fame. 259 have been voted in. Uh, we canceled our induction ceremony this past summer for the class of 2020, which is Conchita Martinez and uh, Goran Ivanisevic. So uh, we will um, gladly welcome them and the soon to be uh, elected class of 21 uh, this coming summer. The process is elaborate. Uh, the process for enshrinement uh, that leads to the induction ceremony is uh, includes uh, a few different committees, the last of which is uh, referred to as the Enshrining Nominating Committee. Uh, that's a group of uh, just over 20 individuals who are represented by Hall of Famers, leaders in our sport, historians, um, journalists, um, and some others who uh, have a uh, position in the sport that is both uh, littered with experience and expertise, but also a mad passion for the sport and the, the, the great appreciation uh, and respect for the history of our sport. Anybody can nominate anybody. So Pete, you could, you could, no you could nominate your Uncle Buck. There is a committee that would eliminate Uncle Buck from, uh, <laughs> from consideration, uh, but uh, at, the end of, at the end of the day, after that ballot is created by the enshrining nominating committee, it's distributed to uh, uh, voting groups, depending on the category, um, most of which are well over 100 people um, of similar composition, Hall of Famers, historians, journalists, and the such. You've incorporated fans into this process in recent years. How is it that people around the world can participate? So every, every fall, um, we uh, open up fan voting for induction with respect to the player category. So this, uh, this year, fans from, uh, I think, pretty close to 140 different nations voted for uh, the five player candidates. And those were Jonas Bjorkman, Sergei Bruguera, Juan Carlos Ferrero, Leighton Hewitt and Lisa Raymond. They see the same ballot that our voting groups do. They can, uh, they see uh, the biographical information, some um, some other information about the uh, about the candidates, and uh, they can vote for one or all of the candidates and um, verify their vote. That way, you know, I think it's it's been really it's been really fun from the standpoint of we, we did it because in this day and age, we really feel like as informed as the public is, as passionate as as the global uh, tennis community is, 
it was appropriate to give uh, the fans a voice in this uh, in this voting process, understanding that we weren't going to uh, dilute the vote of the actual voting groups, uh, but still give some influence to the fans. What's been a really nice uh, ancillary benefit here is because of the way our team has curated the content and the biographical information about uh, the candidates, there are people all over the world learning about uh, Jonas Bjorkman's and Lisa Raymond's career that um, maybe wouldn't have normally been quite so informed. So um, tennis history is made by uh, way more than just the 259 individuals who've been voted in. Um, so it is, uh, it is awfully nice that we can inform people about uh, other players that uh, may or may not be future Hall of Famers. And it goes beyond players. What are some of the other ways people get recognized in categories that, that you choose these Hall of Famers from? Yeah. So the Hall of Fame also has a contributor category, which is very standard across uh, uh, the various Halls of Fame. That group is, for us, it encompasses coaches, media, administrators, promoters, uh, other figures in our sport. Similar categories uh, reside under different names at the other Halls of Fame. We also have a uh, wheelchair tennis category, which is pretty unique. Our, uh, our sport has uh, been about as inclusive as any in the physically disabled uh, athlete realm. Uh, our first wheelchair tennis uh, inductee was Brad Parks, who was uh, one of the creators of the sport of wheelchair tennis. I don't know how many um, wheelchair inductees we have at this point in time, but it, we have at least five. We'll have another class inducted in 2023, most likely. Is there a baseline criteria of X number of wins or titles or grand slams or ranking, or is it more subjective than that? It is more subjective than that. With, uh, with respect to the player category, there's eligibility criteria of having an esteemed, an esteemed resume at, uh, and of success at the international level. I think most people involved in the process look at probably two primary uh, data points, and that is uh, world rank, world ranking, and uh, numbers of Grand Slam wins. However, uh, for sure, um, winning percentage, winning percentages against certain um, levels of players, number of tournament wins, years at number one, years in the top five. The, the data goes on and on and on. And I always encourage fans and people who are entering into the voting process for the Hall of Fame to consider more, more data points as, as opposed to fewer. It's, um, our, our sports changed a lot over, over, the year at the over the years at the professional level. At once upon a time it, before 1968, it was amateur and professionals weren't allowed to compete alongside the, the other best players of the world. Uh, weren't allowed to play in the Grand Slams. Uh, now, not only is the sport been open for 50 years, but we also have uh, Masters uh, Series tournaments on the men's side and Premier Series tournaments on the women's side that 
that mandate uh, the greatest players in the world to be in the same place at the same time so regularly that um, I think they're the number of prestigious events that players gear themselves up to make sure that they're winning it happens way off, way more often than I think it, it, than, than I than I think it used to. Uh, play is much more global, much less regionalized than it than it once was. So I I, I do um, I do believe that uh, these data points need to continually be reflected upon to make sure that we're not overvaluing any one any any one criterion. With respect to the contributor category, we uh, amended our policies and procedures. Uh, about four years ago now, five, almost five years ago. And, um, uh, and those, the, that category, the eligibility criteria at several years ago was uh, exceptional contributions to the sport of tennis. And um, anybody who's ever been to the US Open or Wimbledon and walks around for 15 minutes understands that they're walking by um, dozens, if not hundreds of people who've made exceptional contributions to the sport. So we have um, uh, further defined that criteria by um, establishing uh, these individuals should be pioneers in the sport, leaders of uh, transcendent impact. And I think that more adequately defines what the what the criteria should be. Yeah. What do you guys do as, as an organization to maintain relationships with these inductees? beyond just giving them a plaque on the wall to, to strengthen that bond with them? A number of things. I think the most, um, the, most, the most visible is when we travel and uh, travel down to Australia in uh, normal times and announce the class of, uh, uh, of the given year, uh, along with every Hall of Famer that's on property, being on court together. It's probably no more than 20, 20 minutes of uh, of a show every time we can gather hall of Fa hall of famers together uh it, it it provides real impact and i bet you if you if you ask for a candid answer from any of them it's when they feel most connected to the history of the sport most connected to the hall of fame and the times that they feel most proud of their achievements uh, on, on the court. We also do uh, commemorative presentations. We, we have a ring program. So uh, several times every year we're on major tennis stadiums presenting, presenting these commemorative rings to Hall of Famers. It's, it's in some ways a little bit of a, it's, it's, it's the after party to the destination wedding. So somebody somebody goes and elopes or gets married in a in a deserted uh, in a deserted place and only so many of their friends and family can attend but we try to go back to their homeland where we can uh, we can celebrate them in front of uh, a larger population of their uh, of their friends and family and fans there's a lot of tennis history outside of just the individuals who have been enshrined. And I think I read there are 25,000 pieces of tennis memorabilia at the Tennis Hall of Fame. That itself is its own piece of what you do, the museum curation. What goes into that and, and how are you involved or do you have a team that manages that for you? 25,000 is just the number of objects and uh, items of art 
that we have. Uh, wow. Then we have hundreds of thousands of photos and uh, video, uh, uh, videos, literature. We've got a, a, a massive library. So um, it's actually a, a really functional place for a tennis historian to access his, uh, uh, research material for, for what they're working on. Um, occasionally we'll get a, we'll get a, uh, a grad student or a PhD candidate who's um, doing their dissertation on something uh, tennis related. And we'll have, we'll see that person every day for um, weeks to months. And it's, uh, it's really, a, for me, not being a tennis historian, I, I marvel at it, the depth of content that can be accessed uh, and the depth of uh, pursuit of, uh, from an academic uh, perspective that so many people have. The curation, I try to stay relatively distanced from. However, in this day and age, everybody's got an opinion, uh, as do I. And so, uh, but we've got, a, uh, we've got a, a, a team of museum professionals who lead the, uh, the representation of history and the uh, design of exhibits and, 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 and determine when, when somebody comes to us with a donation of, a, of, of an object or um, uh, a document or something, one of, the, one of the really important things that we do now or our team does now is discern whether we want that. Um, uh, once upon a time, it, it was probably please just give us whatever you got. We're building a collection. When, when your collection grows to the, uh, the size that ours has, we don't have enough space uh, on our property to, to house it all. So we have to be uh, more discerning today than we ever have about what we uh, accept into our collection. You guys have made a pointed effort, and, and I think COVID has probably accelerated that, to take the collection beyond Newport. How are you doing that? We released a new uh, digital exhibit called "Breaking the Barriers," uh, which is a story of uh, which is the story of African American tennis uh, over the last uh, century plus. It is a digital rendering uh, and expansion of a physical exhibit that we have traveled uh, throughout the U.S. over the last, I think, 13 years. And it's our most well-traveled of uh, museum traveling exhibits. The rendering is just uh, spectacular online. We've uh, we've created about uh, seven or eight of these digital exhibits over the last couple of years. We're four years into a digitization project that will see most of our content uh, in, within our collection digitized, uh, and it does free us up to do. Uh, amazing work on the on, on digital platforms. Um, we also have a um, relationship with uh, Google Arts and Culture, so you can uh, find some of that same content um, through that through that medium as well. Oh, we've got partners like the Labor Cup, so the three Labor Cups in Prague, Chicago, and Geneva, Switzerland. We've had wonderful physical exhibits. 
uh, in each of those spaces. Those events have been concurrent with fan voting. So we've had fan voting kiosks for the hundreds of thousands of people who come in through the Labor Cup uh, in, the, in that weekend. So really, some really cool stuff um, as, as we go along. We just had an exhibit over at the French Open. Granted, there weren't many people there to see it, but it's really constant. And uh, we've, got a lot of, we've got a lot of strong partnership throughout, this, throughout the sport. What about outside the sport? How much are you in contact with the other halls and learning from them and learning from each other? Well, it depends. Um, so not that long ago, I was a uh, non-Hall of Fame representative and lived a half an hour away from the World Golf Hall of Fame. And in my 20 years in Northeast Florida, I never visited the World Golf Hall of Fame. And that's not because I don't like golf. Certainly have uh, developed a relationship with the World Golf Hall of Fame, the Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, I, I think most of the Halls of Fame are in touch with one another. However, we are all super unique in our, our physical representation and space, what our, what our operations are like. We not only operate a 20-court tennis club, we're a professional tennis franchise in hosting a, the Hall of Fame Open. We have a global mandate, not, not regional, and we're not subsidized by a singular league. Uh, loads different than some of the uh, some of the team sport halls of fame, but there's constantly some imitation that is worthwhile. So we are whether it's social media or whether it's event planning, we we've always got our eyes and ears open. And like the other halls, you're obviously steeped in sports, and you have the museum and the curation piece, which is kind of its own profession. But a lot of your foot traffic is considered, I would think, tourism. How much do you need to get into that tourism space, especially in a place like Newport, where people are coming to see the mansions? And it is a great, probably more summer destination than winter, but, you know, I'm a soft Floridian now. <laughs> I, I think tourism is a, a nut that is really difficult to crack, especially in this, uh, in this area. So uh, when you asked me about Newport at the beginning of, the, uh, of our of our conversation, I referenced that Newport is a tourist tourism destination. It is an outdoorsy destination, um, a huge sailing community, and um, and if I'm not a boater, I'm not a sailor. I'm I kind of like watching the ocean and the waves, but that's about it. And but it's easy to drive drive down the street and see all the boats and just be just marvel at it. The biggest issue that we have from a tourism standpoint is the word tennis. So I'm not interested in mansions. However, mansions do communicate architecture uh, and they do communicate sort of a cultural history. And so when we used to visit and I didn't want to do much other than hit a few tennis balls, hit a few golf balls and run around with our kids. Uh, it wasn't that difficult of an acceptance to say when, when my wife said, let's, let's go to the breakers or let's go to the marble house or what have you. Cause they sound cool, right? The breakers, the marble house. Like, yeah. I'm kind of, you know, how, how painful can it be? Um, <laughs> 
I think that has much, much broader appeal to the non-passionate, I need to learn more about the Carnegies and the, and the Vanderbilts and the such. And the non-passionate, I, uh, I need to study what, what the Roaring Twenties and the Gilded Age were, were like. Um, the International Tennis Hall of Fame, it is, um, uh, it's, really, it's really difficult to appeal to everybody. I mean, it's really difficult to appeal sort of at, at, um, at a glance to somebody who's not passionate about tennis, yet uh, the International Tennis Hall of Fame or the Newport Casino is a national historic landmark it is an architectural gem uh, in keeping with what else happens uh, at, uh, architecturally within the community and with, uh, with the mansions that are just down the street from us, literally same street. You mentioned some of the other pieces of business that you have there with operating a tennis club. And actually, if you wanted to come, uh, maybe this isn't the case anymore, but at one point in time, you could walk in and rent a court for an hour and go play on the grass courts. And um, you have the tournament, an ATP 250 tournament. You could also, if you wanted to host your event there, you could rent part of your facility for an event. You've got a lot of different pieces of business going on outside of having the Hall of Fame. How do you delegate that around to your staff? And how do you manage all those inputs of what are probably not always priorities that are in sync with each other from these different facets of your operation? Uh, it's an insightful question, Pete. Um, first of all, we are open to the public throughout the year. So yes, we're, we're, one of the, we're one of the few, if not the only place in the world that you can play on grass courts just by walking in and knocking on the door. Um, so please come. As a side note, we just rebuilt all the grass courts a year ago so um, they're they're spectacular. The uh, the incisive element of your of, of your question is uh, here we are a really small business with a global uh, responsibility and a global mission, uh, and in order for us to fund that that di our distribution or delivery of that global mission. Uh, we do need to figure out uh, other other revenue um, other revenue uh, streams. So those revenue streams are weddings and corporate outings and um, proms and 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 God knows what else. To um, also we're the landlord for 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 eight tenants, um, which is I, I will say a better business for us than most than most of the areas of our business. It's passive income. Uh, and but it gets poured right back into property upkeep uh, and delivery of mission specifically through the U.S. Uh, through the muse through the museum. From a you know from a business management standpoint, um, there are certain areas of expertise that we have to staff. I mean, we need uh, event uh, experts. We need uh, museum experts. We need tennis experts. Uh, and then um, uh, a big part of it is, okay, we've got a tennis expert 
are you are you capable and willing to embrace something more than that? Uh, and that is um, that's not for everybody, but it, it it our team does a really good job of embracing more than their silo of expertise. Uh, and and frankly, this um, this year has challenged us all to be to to even embrace more the all hands on deck mentality. Uh, forgive me for making this assumption here, but I feel like their induction ceremony is the pinnacle of the year for you guys, and, and kind of the that is around which everything else is going to to rotate. What all goes into that event? So I would I I would. Uh, venture to disagree with you from one standpoint, but it's a nuanced standpoint. The Hall of Famers are what our year centers around. Um, from a revenue generating standpoint, the, um, the Hall of Fame Open, Hall of Fame Weekend or Enshrinement Weekend uh, is our, our, uh, the most important eight days of our calendar. Uh, and that induction ceremony is uh, gives us an opportunity to shine uh, as an organization and more importantly shine a really bright spotlight on the greatness and exceptionalism that we represent through the the legends of our sport and you mentioned the hall of fame open an atp 250 event and it is really layered you know this induction ceremony is layered on top of that tournament um how do those coexist? Cause you're using the same stadium and you're using the same facilities and you know, you do have a team that has to service both at the same time. Uh, and we market to the same customer as well. It's, it's not easy. And my predecessor and our team did a really good job uh, when I used to come and visit and just sort of help from a, a corporate hospitality um, sideline seat. Uh, of making it look like it was really just simple and easy and right in right in line with functional. And I think we still do that. I, it's harder for me to look at it because I know what's happening behind the curtain. Uh, it's harder for me to look at it through that same lens. But we do have, I would say, two to three very distinct teams that are working on this. We've got uh, we've got our sort of core commercial events team that is uh, making sure that we're fully locked uh, on ticket sales, uh, seat, uh, uh, seat set up and such for the induction ceremony. We've got our communications realm who uh, lead the uh, the run of show and the show, you know, the real show elements of the induction ceremony. And then we've got our fundraising arm that is um, trying to make sure that all the festivities around the Hall of Fame weekend, uh, enshrinement weekend, are um, successful from an attendance standpoint, successful from a uh, pomp and circumstance standpoint and so forth. So we've got sort of the, you know, sort of like the, the hard, uh, big event business all the way through to the, 
you know, how, how nice are the floral arrangements um, type of business. And it's, uh, uh, I, I will say it's really fun to oversee and, and direct from a, from a leadership standpoint. I wouldn't want to be one step closer to the actual execution of the, of, of these events because it's real. it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work and it's a lot of expertise and a lot of stress for, um, for our team. Ticket sales, sponsorship sales, by no means unique. Fundraising, however, is probably pretty unique and that's a vital piece of, of your business. How do you guys go about bringing in people to donate and support what you do at the Hall of Fame? So I, um, this is probably where I was um, least informed when I was recruited to take the role. I, I didn't understand what the, uh, what the business of the Hall of Fame uh, really looked like. I, I, saw, I saw the eight days in summer. Uh, I, I recognized I was a voter. So I recognized what, uh, what the uh, administrative uh, and governance responsibilities of the Hall of Fame were, but I didn't understand eight years ago what it really was uh, deep down inside. And we are a nonprofit that is the beneficiary of representing all that is great in our sport. And our sport is also uh, attributable uh, to really important development in a lot of successful people's lives. And so they, we have a board of governors that's almost 80 deep and, um, and they come from all walks of life, but with a shared love and passion for the, for the sport. And there are most, like, like most nonprofits, they are our most, uh, uh, most ardent uh, supporters, most loyal supporters of, of the Hall of Fame. And they do a wonderful job of also spreading the word on our behalf uh, and making sure that their friends are familiar and uh, per participate in our events and, and the such. Um, that's a huge part of it. Uh, and then, um, we are getting better and better as we go along at appealing to a broader audience for uh, engagement with our content. You know, it's, it's really in this day of unsubscription to uh, market, uh, marketing emails that come way too frequently. Our team has, has really done a, a great job of navigating how much communication can, is the right amount of communication. And um, one of the most important things is that uh, we need to make sure that people fall in love with the Hall of Fame and the history of our sport first. Uh, and, uh, in, and to a certain degree, uh, and not by being complacent, but be intentional about allowing that love to develop and evolve uh, and then, you know, with with an intention of converting that audience into being uh, supportive financially of the organization at whatever level, be it 
$10 a year or $10,000 a year. Um, and, and that is, there's a lot of art in that. There's a lot of feel in that. What, what we are responsible for is everything from very sort of hard tra transactional sales to the softest of let's appeal to somebody's uh, uh, to somebody's loves from years past and, and everything in between. I always believe that if we're doing inspirational and cool work, the support will come. You had a very successful playing career yourself in the pro game, a couple major finals, as high as number four in the world, eight career titles, and then did some coaching after that with some junior programs, even coached back on the pro tour. It's obvious talking to you, your passion for the sport and what you love about the Hall of Fame and why you want to be involved with the Hall of Fame. But what was it that drew you to taking on the work of a CEO and to take on that type of leadership position, especially the juxtaposition to leading that big team after such a solo venture as being a professional tennis player? I, I took the job at the Hall of Fame, not because I was passionate about the Hall of Fame. I, 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 I just I'll lead with that and I won't apologize for that. I took the job uh, when I was recruited to the Hall of Fame because of the sport. I am passionate about the sport. I believe I will go to my grave no matter when, owing the sport a debt. I, that no matter what I give back to the sport, I will have certainly taken more from it than, um, than given to it. When the Hall of Fame asked for me to do this job, uh, it was not divorced from my uh, psyche of leadership. I mean, I, I like leadership. I am either the guy you want to give a shovel and uh, to tell me which hole to dig where, or I'm the guy to try to lead and inspire. Um, so the notion of somewhere in between does not appeal to me. I am not the... Okay, I got a I got a group of ten people. I want you to do this, that, there's the other thing. Like I'm I'm gonna drive myself bonkers and everybody along with me. So I think it it really appealed from a service, from an influence uh, uh, of the sport, uh, and from uh, what I thought at the time were uh, were skills that or talents maybe that I had innately in me. Uh, and skills that I was interested in developing. I served uh, for eight out of my 14 years on the, on the ATP tour uh, as president of the player council. I was always interested in the governance of the sport, what was happening to make sure that the sport was successful. I served on the USDA board for six years. Um, I was probably two or three years into that when when I started this job that, um, you know, those experiences incredibly informative as to uh, how somebody with my background who wore shorts to work all his life, uh, who didn't love school, who didn't love the academic um, elements of school, um, 
could find uh, gra uh, gratification, uh, fulfillment, challenge, and a whole lot of, uh, of other benefits from uh, doing the work of, uh, of, leading, uh, of leading an organization like this. Were there any things you did, whether it's conversations you had, mentors you reached out to, books you read that were pivotal in helping you understand what a leadership role such as a CEO at an organization like the Hall of Fame entails? So my childhood tennis coach who is, how about this, your wife's God husband, <laughs> if that's not weird enough. <laughs> so full disclosure, Pete, your wife is my uh, eldest son's godmother. Um, his godfather uh, actually was at one point in time the executive director and chief operating officer of the USTA. And um, what is his name? Rick Furman. Okay. Uh, he was in that role from 96 through 2003. Rick has been a sort of second father figure, primary mentor since I was 10 years old. Um, I'm no longer in my teens. So that was the first call that I, that I made when, um, when, this, when this opportunity really started to uh, materialize. And when I finally uh, accepted the role, Rick gave me some really valuable advice and um, specifically with the notion of in this seat uh, and the two and the two most memorable elements of that were know your bylaws know know what the constitution of the organization is uh, and know them really really well and the other is know 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 where the dollars are know where they're going and know where they're coming from there's never been one time where I've been on those things, where I've regretted uh, or not appreciated the fact that I knew where the money was or what the bylaw stated. Uh, but there have been times where I wasn't quite certain. And, they, and those were times where I'd say, you know what, this is informative, this is educational, and, and, and there's more for me to pay attention to. Are there elements or traits from having been an elite professional athlete that translate and influence your work as a CEO. You referenced uh, running a, uh, a small business, that I used to run a small business um, in, in the player development sector. Uh, and I had a, a dear friend who I hired to be my head coach, right hand, because uh, it was a maiden voyage for me. And uh, he is, and this, this fellow is now the head coach at uh, University of Nebraska's men's team, Sean Mimey. Uh, and Sean is a worker. He's a, he, he, likes to, he likes to go out on the tennis court and grind, and he likes to uh, make sure that he's uh, pouring himself into his work all day, every day. And there were a couple of times where uh, he stayed uh, excessively late uh, at, a, at a time where it was not necessary. It wasn't like we had a deadline the next day, but he was just, he was that diligent. And I, uh, um, and I have that trait in me a little bit as well, but I used to, 
I used to make fun of them and they say, all right, Jim Courier, I'll see you tomorrow. Because when Jim and I uh, shared a coach and trained together a ton early in our careers, Jim, Jim insisted, like if he would figure out how to be the last person on the court, on the track, in the gym. If, if somebody else said, I just want to see if I can outstay him, they wouldn't because he wouldn't leave. He literally was the one who felt like he needed to shut the lights off just to prove it to everybody else. You know, I never, I never felt like that was appropriate for me. However, I've never gotten to a point in my life where I feel like I deserve to just turn the clock off. I just don't, I don't, I don't feel like, I don't feel like that's why we're here. We're, there are times where I turn the clock off in order to be what I'm supposed to be in my real life uh, with my family. But um, I, so I, I do think from translation of, from tennis court to uh, executive office, it is that, that dedication of I've got to be better uh, in order for the organization to be better. And that means I got to keep going. I got to figure out a solution to this problem. I got to lead better. Um, and, um, and sometimes that's just, I got to put in more time. As a professional tennis player, you interact with the media a lot. How is that relationship different when you're a CEO? I love being thoughtful. It's one of the reasons why I speak slowly. I, 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 I like to think about what I'm about to say rather than just say it and trust myself enough to blurt out the, the, emotional, uh, the emotional response. Um, when I was playing, I could literally sit in front of a member of the media and there was no consequence really to taking my time um, bearing my soul as long as it was not um, critical of everybody around me. If it was really about about what I was typically asked about, the the, the more thoughtful, the deeper the answer wa was, the better it was for me, the better it was for the member of the media, uh, and there was almost zero consequence, if ever a consequence. In a role of leadership at a, at a business, there are elements that you got to be super tight, uh, convey the, um, the talking point or the message on point and get in and out quickly. And, that, um, and, if, and if you get into the bearing of soul or let me let me just tell you a little bit more so that you have the context for where I'm coming from. Uh, there's, 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 um, there's more consequence than I could have ever imagined by doing that. You mentioned being very active when you were a player in the players council, being president of that organization, which is a, a representative body of literally hundreds, if not thousands of professional tennis players you are now involved in a tournament and the way tennis is structured, there is a little bit of a rub between the player side and the tournament side. We could do a whole podcast on that, but I'm curious to know if there's anything that you've learned 
now being on this side, on the tournament side, that seeing it from the perspective of a different stakeholder would have been valuable to you when you were on that player council side? So when I was, um, when I was on the player council, the body was, uh, let's say an advisory body meant to communicate with the board of directors uh, to make sure that uh, and to, the board of directors and uh, player relations staff um, of the ATP in order for the board of directors to understand how the players felt about issues that um, affected us. Um, and then the board of directors went in and ran a business, right? They, they, they led the strategic future of, of the business. Um, I, I wouldn't say I was a good player council president from the standpoint of, uh, I did not uh, approach it as how do the players get a better deal? I did it with the intent of how do the players feel? How does this really affect the players? Not emotionally, uh, not biasly, but how does this, how, how do these issues affect the players? So, and then have that communication with the, the board of directors as well as possible to inform them just to understand what consequences are for whatever uh, whatever they determine the best business future for the for the sport uh, for the or for the tour. Um, that relationship, the 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 relationship from layer to layer to layer of the ATP, <coughs> has ch has changed. Ah, so much. I, I I can't even begin to articulate how much different uh our our board members are now deemed to be strictly representatives and are meant to be voting the conscious conscience of the constituents that they represent that i think leads to dysfunction uh at the, to the at the nth degree um and the fact of the matter is well, there are several former players who are also uh, tournament directors. And while I'm no longer the tournament director of the Hall of Fame Open, I'm the tournament chairman and I'm still heavily involved with the ATP element. We're all humans. And um, regrettably, human nature is um, oftentimes that of complaining and deeming that the world is unfair and the other side is getting the better gig. Uh, I had a good chuckle to myself, the, the first all tournament meeting that I, uh, all tournament director meeting that I went to because the conversation was exactly the same. The topic was exactly the same. The opinion was exactly opposite, but the, but the, the general message is as a player, Ah, the tournaments are killing us. The tournaments are killing, and you know. And then, the, from the tournament side, the players want more, 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 more. And, um, and and that you know that's where that's where uh, structure can be improved, governance can be improved, and uh, ideally we get to a point where um, 
you know, the organization can can see a bigger, better future and pursue that as an as an organization um, and ideally as a sport at large, and not as um, uh, member units or constituencies and, and the such. As I said, I think we could do a whole episode just on uh, kind of that topic and for sure do another episode, if not two or three, on your tennis career. I will ask you one tennis-specific question just because there's an interesting synergy here of Jimmy Van Allen. And he also was the creator of the tiebreak. How important was that tiebreak in your career? Uh, well, listen, I... Uh, I, I th- for the most part, I would look, uh, I would imagine, I don't know this. I don't know what my career long tiebreak record was, but I, I think for the most part, there would be some pretty good connectivity between somebody's win loss percentage and somebody's match win loss percentage and somebody's tiebreak win loss percentage. Um, I do think that if you saw fluctuations up or down in those uh, in those or greater variances in those percentages, uh, I think you would see probably the 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 better servers in the game perhaps vary vary up and the the lesser servers vary down. I do think the tiebreaker has been really important just in the consumability of our sport as, as, as our attention spans have gotten shorter. Um, I can't stand the 10 point tiebreaker. Um, I think it is, uh, I think if, if we really need to shorten the, the time frame for competition, I think there's other ways to do that, uh, and preserve the deuce ad element of our sport which creates the greatest number of inflection points or uh, pivotal points during the course of competition uh, and actually sustain the same model of competition from start from start to end. Um, so to just all of a sudden arbitrarily say, we're not going to play a third set, we're going to decide this entirely differently. And especially when there's a tiebreaker to end the second set to jump right back into another tiebreaker is um, like nails on a chalkboard for me. For the record, you had a career winning percentage of 637 and in tiebreaks, you were 567. But that those tiebreaks probably prevented you from playing some, you know, 70, 68 sets along the way. Yeah, man. so so good for my physical health. Poor, bad, bad for my resume. Um, so that you know, I would say that runs uh, vastly contradictory to my thesis of the better servers should do better in the in the tiebreak. Um, I don't think that runs con- uh, contradictory to another thesis that I could draw, and that is. Uh, nerves were an issue for me. And so coming into uh, greater sight of the, of the finish line, uh, I think adversely affected me. I allowed it to adversely affect me more than most 
players allowed uh, allowed it to affect them. That's a perfect pivot point to my closing segment, the set pieces, because I know you're nervous about these questions, but <laughs> hopefully you will power through with the finish line in sight. Uh, these six questions I ask all the guests here on credentials only. The first one, uh, what are podcasts or newsletters that you make sure you catch to help learn and stay informed? So the, the, the one that I'm really drawn to now is called the portal. Um, and it's hosted by a guy named Eric Weinstein, who is an economist and um, works at a at an, uh, a capital investment firm. He is an intellectual that exceeds most of my comprehension most of the time, but uh, he really he really challenges me to think far more far more creatively about what our future might look like. I don't always agree with uh, or align with his, with what my perceptions are of his, uh, of his positions. He does a really good job of being unemotional and, and just sharing what he believes are the facts around, uh, around really important issues. And I, I, I love it. I, I've just discovered it and I, I really enjoy it. I'll listen to a Joe Rogan uh, excerpt from uh, with some regularity, maybe a couple times a, a week uh, on YouTube, just you know, picking off the, the you know the ten to fifteen minute conversation with somebody. There's also a professor out of Brown University named Glenn Lowry, He's sort of in the in more in the uh, the realm of Eric Weinstein, just obviously brilliant. Um, I think he might be an economics professor as well. And I fell asleep in all my economics classes in college, so it doesn't make sense. But uh, uh, Professor Lowry does a really good job. And he's um, he's been interesting to listen to with respect to um, the racial um, uh, the racial justice discussion that we that we've seen height, uh, on a heightened level over the last uh, uh, eight months now. Who are your most valuable follows? Are there social posts that you don't want to miss if this person said something? Uh, social media really disgusts me. <laughs> so I, I and, and I'm not, I don't mean that in jest one bit. Um, mm. I, so I, I actually don't consume a ton of it. I do have Twitter accounts um, and that's a plural, which I still don't quite understand why I would have two, but I do have two. Um, uh, and, and, and I follow a lot and occasionally and not, not regularly, occasionally I'll, uh, I'll poke my head around and, and stuff like that. Uh, I do like to follow, or I like to um, uh, actually click on some of the hall of famers content just to see what's, see what they're thinking. And, um, uh, and then there's some, uh, there's some other handles like uh, what is it? Humor and pets and like, I find I find that I find that's the easiest way to discover sort of the more uplifting, lighter content. I can get my news either through more traditional apps and then let's call it my magazine. What used to be my magazine reading is more in the in the podcasting realm. What are a couple of books you'd recommend to people to check out? Um a Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving. 
The Water is Wide by Pat Conroy. These are both uh, these are both novels. Um, actually, anything by Pat Conroy. Um, and then, um, oh, man, uh, my tennis partner. Right. If if you're gonna have um, tennis listeners, there's a book by a guy named uh, I think it's a- I don't know if I pronounce it right. Abraham Verghese, uh, V-E-R-G-H-E-S-E. Uh, it, I read it probably 15, 15 to 20 years ago. Uh, really, uh, it's, it's, uh, frankly, it's a, it's a really good book. Um, it's, it's one that um, uh, I'll consider rereading it because it's mostly out of my memory bank at this point in time. What would you consider your cheat code or life hack? still don't quite understand what cheat, <laughs> cheat code and life hack mean. So listen, I, I think uh, if, there was, if there was one thing that I would not want to do without in this world, it's coaching. I, um, uh, I was the beneficiary of the most spectacular coaching and mentorship uh, of any tennis player I've ever come into contact with. And it's not, it's not hyperbole. I have a, I, I, I spoke earlier about Rick Furman and, you know, here's a guy who went from a, a classroom educator to a tennis club owner, teaching pro to a volunteer uh, board member at the USTA to leading that entity from, uh, from the staff side of things. Uh, he's the, he's the, the most capable educator that I have ever come into contact with personally. Uh, he always knew which buttons to push in me to stimulate passion first and foremost, um, to teach me how to hit a forehand and a backhand, sure. And, you know, a lot of other things, but first and foremost, stimulate passion. Uh, I turned pro at uh, the age of 20 and the USTA's first um, um, demonstration of support was to set me up with um, Jose Higueras. Uh, Jose is actually the godfather of our, of our second child. Uh, and Jose coached Michael Chang to the French Open Championship, Jim Courier to number one and four Grand Slam titles. Uh, also helped Pete Sampras and Roger Federer later in their in their careers. Um, I have I had 14 years of a professional career where I leaned on Jose constantly. Totally different approach uh, than than Rick, but uh, uh, similarly important in um, in my in my development on the court, but more importantly as a person. I continue to benefit from coaching and mentorship, either from board members, especially our board chairs, the three board chairs that I've worked, uh, worked with, uh, and also um, in, in a um, executive coaching relationship with, uh, with, this, uh, with actually somebody who, I, um, who was a teaching pro when I was 10, when I moved to Michigan. So um, just got into other, other business. What's your favorite sports memory as a kid? I'm not a baseball fan, but one of the one of my favorite baseball memories was uh, Kirk Gibson hitting, uh, and I, I was 
an older kid at the time, but when uh, when Gibson hit the home run, uh, basically on one leg in the in the World Series. Uh, another would be uh, Borg McEnroe uh, Wimbledon final, and I don't know which year. And I do work for the International Tennis <laughs> Hall of Fame, uh, but you know it was if that match started at nine o'clock, it ended at uh, in the morning. It ended at probably one o'clock in the afternoon and my my eight-year-old best buddy and i went down to the park and we played our we, you know we played our best of five set match just like borg McEnroe. and um you know those those two probably stand out or at least come to my mind um i'm a i was a browns fan from childhood so there's not a lot of and a Cavs fan as well so there's not a lot of there's not a lot of shiny moments to remember from the seventies and eighties. Do you keep your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? So I don't, um, my family does though. So my, um, uh, my wife, Amy has, uh, a bunch of credentials that, uh, hang on a hook in our closet, um, along with her bathrobe. Right. I mean, it's like, it's just like, um, it's almost like like that hooks a bit of a junk drawer. Uh, and then all of our kids still have a number of credentials from uh, the events that we've taken them to uh, primarily, uh, primarily, primarily in tennis. Todd, I really appreciate you taking the time to share so much about what you do at the International Tennis Hall of Fame, but also your path from being a player to the CEO at that organization. Thank you so much. Pete, great to talk to you, and uh, thanks for not excluding me from your podcast. I was uh, I was pretty concerned about getting the snub, uh, but you, you do. Hey, listen, um, you do so much, and don't cut this from the podcast, okay? Uh, you do so much great work for our sport, uh, and to uh, take the time to shine a light on the Hall of Fame it means an awful lot to me. Thanks, Todd. We packed a lot into that conversation, and I definitely think we could have done a full episode on several different topics that we discussed. I really appreciate Todd for sharing so much with us in this episode and for his incredibly kind words at the end. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you like what you've heard, please do us a favor. Leave a rating or review wherever you are listening. And head over to credentialsonly.com for show notes. And drop us your email so we can slide into your inbox when we have a new episode to share. Mike Miche edits Credentials Only which is a Holter Media production.